My name is Derek, and I pastor in uh, Warren, Ohio, and I'm also involved with the Ohio School of Ministry and uh, uh, Southeastern University. There's a few different uh, uh, things that I'm privileged to do. I have a family, and th- these are them. Um, that is my oldest son there, Max, and he is, I don't know what I just did there. Uh, he is 18 years old, uh, single, so if, uh, <laughs> if, that's, if that's important for you to know, I get that too. My wife, Jennifer, myself, my two little boys, and my daughter uh, there, and, and uh, they're, they're wonderful, and uh, wherever I, I bring them wherever I go because they live in my heart, and uh, so that's the family. I want to today uh, talk to you about um, uh, image of God-based leadership. Now, I do a lot of work in um, image of God studies and, and, and what it means and what it looks like, and there's a whole lot of, of opinions and so I figured I would just add one more to the mix. And um, not that, you know, as a Johnny-come-lately, I've figured it all out. Um, but it's just, it's really uh, impacted my own devotional life. It's impacted my ministry in so many different ways. Because one of the things it has done, it has taught me, believe it or not, learning about the image of God teaches you how to interact and deal with human beings. And um, I have pretty much... Um, given up watching the news. I, I used to think that I was a news junkie. Anybody here a news junkie? I discovered that I wasn't a news junkie at all. I was an opinion junkie. And I've, so what I started doing was I stopped watching it all the time. And I have found that I can love people right or left a lot easier when I don't always have people in my ear uh, telling me how I should view other people. So when we talk about the image of God theology and applying it to Christian leadership, it becomes very, very important as you really start to drill down. And I think it's extra important in these days, especially in the church landscape, think about what we're up against. So we have, and I don't, I'm not throwing stones, but you look at the Catholic Church, and they have a lot of issues with um, pedophilia. And now it's coming out, none abuse, none, N-U-N, abuse. In the evangelical world, we had uh, misogyny with, uh, um, with Willow Creek. And now, Pastor John mentioned it uh, in a meeting yesterday, but you've certainly uh, heard about what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention with um, 700 unreported um, abuse situations. And so... When I look at leadership, for me, I don't think there's any surprise that we need to step back from leader development to look at what we're doing and say, okay, there's got to be more to Christian leader development than competence alone, right? So in my doctoral work, I read a lot of different um, books on leadership, both secular and Christian, Mormon, the Mormons write a lot of books about leadership. But what I've, and I've discovered that there are some excellent principles. Now, I don't want to give credit where credit isn't due because the best principles are actually biblical principles that they have just discovered and it's part of what they're doing. And so one of the conclusions that I've come to, and I really believe in leader development, I really, really do, 
However, in the Christian world, the leader development approach that we take has got to be based on more than competence alone. So we can have a person who can lead a class, who can lead a board, who can do all those types of things, but character becomes a major issue. And one of the things that I have discovered just by observation is that there is a tension in the leadership world between uh, go-it-alone leadership and team-based leadership. Leaders who... um, Go it alone, and they don't need anybody. I remember one of the scandals from the 80s. I was in high school, and I was watching an interview uh, with one of the board members on this uh, major player in the evangelical world, in the Assemblies of God even, um, that had a moral failure. And the question was asked of the board member, who says no to this pastor? And the response was, nobody. And we look and we say, well, what a terrible leader that is. And I look and I say, what a terrible structure that is. I tell you, I've given my life to Christian leadership. I don't want to lose my soul over it. I don't want to lose my family. And so I want to talk to you today about, and, I, and, and I've, like I always do, I'm overprepared. Okay? I've, got, I've got way too much material, and, which is why I didn't really mind uh, playing that song and just kind of settling and leveling the room out. All our hope is in Jesus, right? Um, but in case we don't get through everything, I might have to fly at the end, like go really fast. I think you'll be cool with that. But I want to today, number one, I want to establish right off the top that I am in favor of team-based leadership over um, go-it-alone leadership. So if you have to go and anybody says, what was it about? Say, well, team leadership is better than uh, go-it-alone leadership. Okay, so there, there, it's in a nutshell. But I want to point your attention I want to point your attention to Genesis chapter 1. Oh, what happened there? You, you shouldn't see that. It's this, this thing always is, keeps trying to log in to the, uh, the Wi-Fi here. Tell me when it goes away, okay? I'm going to force quit everything. All right. Uh, force quit. Hold on one sec. It's this, it's this Wi-Fi here. Turn off the Wi-Fi? Okay, tell me what it did. We're good? Okay. All right. All my hope is in Jesus. All right. Image of God-based leadership. So if you want the seminar in a nutshell, here it is. Thank <laughs> you. 
So, <laughs> hey, listen to this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27 says this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in, the, in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them male and female. So what I want to do, okay, I don't know where this is because it, it's messed up on my computer, but we'll just find the right slide here. There we go. All right, so part one. Part one, and I want you to know that I rooted everything in biblical theology. You're cool with that? All right. Go it alone leadership is rooted in humanity's fallen nature. Let me prove that to you. I want to talk to you about image of God teeming, image of God based teeming, and its origins are pre-fall. It's based on how God actually created us to be. I'm in your way. But when the fall came, and you know the story, you know what happened, shame and suspicion and all the blaming, all those things came in, and there is a difference between what a team looks like after the fall and before the fall. So after the fall, as human beings, we adopted a go-it-alone attitude. Let me, let me show you. The first thing, the first danger, I would say, in going alone leadership, as we saw kind of in that video, is that there's no protection from attack. In Judges <clears throat> chapter 18, there's a city called Laish. Anybody familiar with Laish? Laish was a rich city who lived their lives with a go-it-alone approach. This is what it says. So the five men... And it describes an upcoming battle that's going to happen. So five men went out to the town of Laish where they noticed the people living carefree lives like the Sidonians. They were peaceful and secure. The people were wealthy because their land was very fertile. And they lived a great distance from Sidon and had no allies. Okay? No allies. Don't need anybody. Go it alone, right? Okay. So... What ends up happening is, in verse 27 28, then with Micah's idols and his priests, the men of Dan came to the town of Laish, whose people were peaceful and secure. They attacked with swords and burned the town to the ground. And there was no one to rescue the people. For they lived a great distance from Sidon, had no allies nearby. And this happened in uh, the valley of Beth Rehob. And then the people of the tribe of Dan rebuilt the town and live there. And one of the things that I've noticed through the years, and you've probably noticed too, is that as people are starting to drift and they start to adopt a go-it-alone attitude, does anybody know, or anybody ever been tempted to do that? You've been burned, you've been disappointed, and you might not even have made the decision, you just realized, I haven't called anybody in a long time. Or you're getting burnt out because you have something to do and you've got to set everything up. And you've got to tear everything down. And there's nobody there to help you. And how do you feel? You start to feel ticked off. Right? You start to think, well, does nobody else care? Right? And you start to say, if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And, and I want to tell you that that is a real danger. 
it's a danger because when the attacks come, there's nobody there to rescue you. And, and just a little bit of insight. Because there, there have been times where I've, I, I've adopted some kind of go-it-alone attitude, where I pulled away. And you know what I noticed? That even without knowing it, I project something that tells people, stay away. And guess what they do? They do exactly what I want, and they stay away. And then you know what happens to me? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I start seeing it everywhere. When your mindset goes along this path, nobody's with me, I'm all alone, I, I, I'm the one who has to carry the ball. There is a part of your brain called the reticular activator. Everybody knows that, right? The reticular, here, let me tell you, let me, okay, so I bought a, um, I bought a Chevy Equinox uh, uh, in the spring. Never before had I ever given a Chevy Equinox a thought. I bought a, a 2013 Chevy Equinox, and guess what? I saw them everywhere. Everywhere. That's your reticular activator acting up. You know what it is? It's, def it's a defense mechanism. When, when you're walking down the street by yourself at night, you hear every leaf blowing because you're hyper-aware looking for danger. Well, it just kind of works that way. When I got engaged to my wife and I'd, and I'd meet a woman at the store or whatever, guess what the first thing I looked at was? Her hand. I wanted to see the ring. I was hyper-aware of engagement rings. That's a reticular activator. And so in your life, when you are telling yourself, I'm all alone, guess what's going to happen? You're going to look at everyone else and say, look, there's another example. There's another example. There's another, and you're building a case against the people behind you. Beware. Beware. Because you have no protection from attack as you, as you begin to draw away. The second, uh, the second uh, danger is you have no protection from yourself. None. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the chapter starts out, when kings go to war, David stayed home. He stayed home and he was on the roof looking around and he sees Bathsheba ceremonially bathing on the roof and nobody could say no to David. He's all alone. Nobody can say, hey, David, come on, in the, come on in the house. You need to pack up your gear and you need to go off to war. You need to go where you need to go. And what happens is, is David's the king, feels that he has a right to everything. He's the king. Who's going to say no to the king? Certainly not Bathsheba. And the whole thing unfolds. And David, this, God forgives but not only did David end up in a world of hurt, Israel ended up in a world of hurt. And you follow it along, and it goes sour very, very quickly. Well, quickly in terms of eternity. And so David is, um, he, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered, and he has to have him murdered because he's an honorable man. He won't play, and, and I'm just trusting that because of time that you know the account, he brings him back from war, and, and he wants to pretend that the baby that she's pregnant with is Uriah's, etc. And David, who is the king and doesn't need anybody, leaves himself vulnerable to his own temptations. 
And one of the hardest things to do as a Christian, let alone a leader, is to talk to somebody about the temptations that you face, right? Because when you talk about the temptations that you face, there's a fear that people are going to judge you. And David's a really interesting case because Nathan comes and he says, hey, king, we got a problem. Because you got to figure out how he's going to approach the king. And he says, look, I know this guy, and he was having his family over, and he didn't, and he didn't, want, to, he didn't, he didn't want to feed him his own sheep, so he stole the ewe lamb of his next-door neighbor, and that ewe lamb was more of a pet, and slaughtered it and ate it. And David's response is really interesting, right? He says, the man must what? Die, right? He's, he must die. You ever think that was a bit of an overreaction? Have you ever dug through the law and thought, is there a law that says the penalty for stealing a baby sheep is death? Here's the deal. When you can't control yourself, you will try to control everybody. If you can't deal with the sin in your own life, you are going to hammer it in other people. you got to control something. And I've found it's a lot easier to control my family. It's a lot easier for me to control my staff than for me to get up on time, spend time with the Lord, be honorable, be honest. Go to lone leadership. Offers you no protection from yourself. You're too close to the situation. The third danger is that there's no protection from despair. Elijah. Elijah just had this major, major confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven. They're destroyed. And he gets word that the queen wants him dead and he runs. And he hides. He wants to die. He's despairing. I'm the, what? The only one left. There's nobody else. I'm it. And God said, what, what do you mean you're the only one? There are thousands can I, can I tell you what I struggle with from time to time? From time to time, I struggle with the best word I can, I want to be careful what word I use. I don't want to use the word depression because there's clinical implications, so I use the word despair. And there are times where we'll have a Sunday and the attendance is amazing. Four people gave their hearts to the Lord. We baptized a few and the next week, there's like 40 people missing. I don't care if you have the flu. We're trying to get our average attendance up. At least, yeah, at least come, check in, and then go home. I don't care what you do. We got online giving. And I had to come to a point, and I made this very conscious decision. I will not allow the actions of others be the basis of my joy. And here's the deal. I have people in my life that I cultivate the relationship with so that I can avoid this compulsion that I have. Winston Churchill had it too. So me and Winston, we both have this idea of being chased down by a black dog. That's how he would describe it. And I wouldn't say for me it's, that, it's like that. I, I'm not really facing the Nazis, right? So I don't have as much pressure on me as he did. But I can tell you that I have to force myself out of a go-it-alone attitude 
because I know, I know what happens. I start being mean to people. The sarcasm. I smile, but I think it comes out as a sneer. You know what I'm saying? Please don't judge me. I'm just telling you, the danger is real. The danger is real. Because here's, the, here's what happens. You're trying to do something for God. You have an adversary. It's not going to be easy. Read the book of Acts. Whenever the church rises up to do something for God, Satan rises in opposition against it, right? I remember, the, I remember when my children were young and we took them to McDonald's. And the, I can't remember what the toy was, but I felt it was demonic. And I remember having to have a conversation with my child and saying, you can't have that. Because God spoke to my heart and he said, I just want to let you know, Derek, I want to remind you, Satan does not think your children are cute. He wants to send your child into the Nile, into the mouths of hungry crocodiles, and that's it. You have got to be the watchman. You can't draw into yourself and call yourself a leader or a protector of anybody else because all you're going to do is try to protect yourself. Like David, Elijah, despair comes upon him. God had to step in and raise up Elisha. The fourth, misunderstanding God, the kingdom's goals or God's goals. This, this one will get you. New Testament. Judas Iscariot. We don't talk about him very often, do we? Here's what happened. So Judas Iscariot in John 3, 1 to 8, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after a dark evening, he came to speak to Jesus. Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You know, I'm just throwing that in for free because that's the wrong text. <laughs> Let me tell you the story. Jesus is being anointed by Mary. He's pouring the, uh, the lard or the oil on his... He's being... What's he doing? She's not just wasting anything. She's anointing him for burial. It's a beautiful moment. She's wiping with her hair and she gets it. She knows that he is the suffering Messiah. And Judas is standing off to the side. And he says this. What a waste. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Talk about being out of step. Judas is in the middle of a team environment. However, his goals are not the goals of the team. You can have a go-it-alone attitude in the middle of a team atmosphere and find yourself actually fighting against kingdom goals. One writer talks about Judas's uh, betrayal of Jesus. Not like a Benedict Arnold thing, but that he wanted to, he was appalled, he was offended that Jesus' route to the kingdom was the cross. He wanted war. And that he believed that if he got Jesus arrested, that the followers of Jesus would rise up and fight the Romans, and throw off their shackles for good, and the Jewish nation would be free. 
Have you ever been on a team, had a team member, or found yourself in the position where you're actually causing tension between the leader? Do you know if you cultivate a go-it-alone attitude within a team environment, you can find yourself not only fighting against and resisting the mission and the vision and the goals of the team, but of God himself. I came to terms, I came to terms when I was a young pastor, working with a pastor who was losing the church. And I remember I preached a message. First message of the year was in January. The pastor was off. I preached the message. And when I was done, the congregation, from my perspective, to a person, stood up and applauded. It wasn't a compliment. And so later that week, I was out to lunch with one of the deacons. And the deacon said to me, Pastor Derek, if the pastor were to leave, would you be interested in pastoring our church? And I remember in that moment, the only thing that came out of my lips, I, 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 just, I just felt so much in my heart that this is what God told me to say. His name is Murray. Whoever's editing this, please take that name out. I said, listen, all I know is this. You ever ask me that question again, I will be on the first plane back home. Because here, I may be right. The pastor might be wrong. It's irrelevant. I don't wear the mantle. It's not me. It's not mine. And I was not, I was not going to be the one. I was not going to be the one to make it worse. I didn't want to find myself fighting against God. Do you remember, do you remember in, in the book of Acts? Remember Peter and John and, their, and the Pharisees are talking and say, look, if we fight against them, we might find ourselves fighting against God. We don't know. If you can't get in line, get out of line. Leave. But better yet, stay and be supportive. Don't be a go-it-alone person on a team. Serve. It is possible to be physically on the team, but operate in a go-it-alone attitude and work in direct opposition of, the heaven, of heaven's goals. The kingdom will be established. It will be established with or without me. I don't want to be the one. I don't want to be the one. What I would rather... I would rather when the story is told, I would rather Jesus come and say, wow, that was really tough. But by my spirit and with my presence, you were honorable. You, you were good to my bride. You know, because here's the deal. If I sin against my pastor, I sin against the bride of Christ. I'm looking at some of the men in this room, and you're pretty big, and... Um, I have a sneaking suspicion. Young man there by the window, you're a big dude, right? Would you, would you agree over there? Yeah, you're, big, you're bigger than me, right? Are you married? Okay, so if I met your wife and I, I was rude to her, or if I was mean to her, would we still be cool? No, I don't think so, right? Hey, listen, the church is a bride. 
and the bride has a husband and the wind and the waves still remember his name. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the law. You get me? So, where are we? The fifth danger is your team will suffer. Anybody here in leadership want your team to suffer? So Paul suffered under go-it-alone people. In 2 Timothy 4.19, do I have it on here? Yeah, listen to this. This is, what, this is what Paul writes. Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Paul is abandoned by his team. You got people there that are, not all of them that list, but you have people in the team that were so concerned with getting rich and being safe and whatever, they left Paul holding the bag. And in, in uh, Acts chapter 4, it talks about when Alexander the coppersmith accused him. He was accused and would not come to his defense. And that's why in verse 16, Paul says, everyone has deserted me. But what I love is that Paul isn't bitter. He expresses, he says to the readers, he says, look, don't, don't be hard on them. Don't hold them responsible because they abandoned me, because they, they were go-to-loan type people, because the Lord has remained committed to me. So for those who are on a team and you feel abandoned, let me just encourage you that God is with you he will support you. He'll get you through. You'll experience healing. The, Paul specifically says that God will rescue him. But there's no doubt that the final, there's others, but the final uh, danger of the go-to-loan leadership is your team will suffer under your leadership. Your team will suffer under your leadership if you're not there for them, if you don't support them, if you don't pray for them, if you don't send them random texts, how are you feeling? Worst of all, that go-to-loan leadership, you'll be looking for that escape hatch every day of the week. You'll be expecting your staff to give out all while you're looking at the door. There are a lot of people who are in ministry that require healing for being abandoned by a go-to-loan leader. So let me pick you up. I want to go, how are we doing for time? Okay, I think I can do it. Team-based leadership is rooted in the image of God. I'm going to skip through some. Actually, I'm going to go really, really fast. Just bear with me. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, uh, we have the creation of humanity. And God says, after he made Adam, it is not good for man to be what? Yeah, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve. And in the text, what's really interesting is that I'm not going to read through that. You can go through that later. It's not good for the Lord. The word in every single verse, except for verse 1 of chapter 1, or of chapter 2, 2, 3, except 13, 15, 19, 23, 30, and 2 verse 1, every time, every verse, the word Elohim is used. Trinitarians would say Elohim is a plural noun, which gives us the first hints at a Trinity God that we serve. That word, in the beginning, God, that's plural. 
It's a plural word. So when it says God made us in his image, it's plural. So I want you to understand that first of all, we're talking about a team that created the world. So if we're made in God's image, I want you to already start thinking team. If team is how almighty God does it, well then that looks something important for us to take advantage of, to think about. And so I want to look at, spend a remaining time looking at three planes, three relational planes that we can get our, um, we can get our cue from, we can get our lead from when it comes to leadership and team-based leadership. The first plane is the God relational plane. And I, if you have your Bibles, go ahead. If not, you can just write these things down. Look at John 17. It doesn't actually talk about how the the divine team interacts with one another, but John 17 gives us a great, great picture of it. First of all, in verse 2 of chapter 17 of John, for you have given him authority, Jesus saying, you've given me authority over everyone. Do you know what team-based leadership does? It delegates authority. It's not all you. And, and, and one of the ways that I have tried to, I'm, I'm not putting myself up as the hero, but do you know since I've been a senior pastor, I've only baptized one person? It's always staff and it's always deacons. I'm up there, I'll lead it. I'm not in the tank. Those are the wins. And I, I, I try to delegate those things. I, I really try to delegate the good things. Amen. And I, I look at this and I say, okay, Jesus says the Father gave authority to the Son. It's delegation. Second, in John 17, there's a mutual honoring. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me glory that we shared before the world. I would suggest this. On your team, everybody should be pointing to the person next to them. Who is it? Who's the star? I'm paid to do this. You know what the star is? The one who works at the diner 35 hours a week doing her best and showing up to pour the coffee at life groups. She doesn't have to do that. You know why she does it? She does it because she's committed to the mission of advancing the kingdom of God. That's the hero. It's the hero. I tell people that. I ask my staff to point to me. One of the metrics that we measure in our church, besides attendance and giving, is how many people volunteered at the church that week. That's what we're trying to include. And that's why we, this year at our, we started doing volunteer of the month and this year at our annual business meeting we're doing volunteer of the year and we actually had people in the church nominate people. And so it's one of the people who does some cleaning in our church. We actually got a personalized, customizable bobblehead that we're going to present to him at the annual business meeting and he's the hero of our church this year. And I want people to know that. Third, there's open communication you can go ahead and read it on your own. It's a, long, it's a long passage. But it says that Jesus perfectly relays the message of the Father. In essence, I told them what you told me to say. In a team, there's a communication. And you've got to protect that communication. There's a couple teams that I'm on right now at our church where we're really nailing down this communication because there's too many people that are confused and if it's going to be an effective team, I've got to, like Jesus and the Father did, I've got to be able to communicate with the people around me. So I look at the God-God plan and say, if they communicated, I need to communicate. You dig? That's cool I say that, right? Can I just say it that way? 
And finally, Jesus identifies, acknowledges, that there's true love that exists between the Father and himself. What do you do to cultivate love and intimacy with the people on your team? Because it's the same idea as marriage. Where the people, like, like one of the things that I really strive to do is to be friends with the people I serve with. And I'm not the easiest person to be a friend of because I'm always running somewhere. But I know that if I want to root my leadership in the image of God where it's a healing thing, as opposed to something that's based in manipulation and, and based in um, inconsistency and, and all those negative things, I got to think, I got to think love. And I can tell you this, as I said, after reading a lot of leadership books, and I wonder if, if uh, Dave Pafford agrees, have you ever heard or read about love in, in a secular leadership book? Probably not. They'll talk about honesty like we would, but honesty to reach the goal, not honesty because we're a person of integrity. In fact, even in Christian books, I don't read a whole lot. Leadership book of loving your staff. It sounds corny. I don't think it is. So the second plane I want to point out to you is the human human. Going back to the very beginning in Genesis, it's a marriage. Adam and Eve are married. And before the catastrophe of the fall, they were united, they were together, they loved each other. There was perfect unity until sin comes in. In fact, before the fall, we have Genesis seeing that it causes this goat alone. Listen to what Genesis uh, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife both, were both naked and what? Not ashamed. A team-based ministry that is rooted in the image of God is not shame-based. It's not these, these harsh things where um, I'm nitpicking everything. Let me tell you something. I know that if I turn my head and look at the person that's running the PowerPoint, I just killed that person. I mean, look at me. I can't even run my own PowerPoint. And I'm going to look back and say, what are you doing? Like, I'm the worst. They don't let me use the PowerPoint, and you can see why. And I'm not kidding. They laugh at me. But because we don't want to be embarrassed, we got to, even though we don't want to be embarrassed, we got to make sure that we're not cultivating atmospheres of mistrust, inappropriate politics, dishonor, lack of recognition, and other dysfunctions like shame. If you look at the way we are created to be, we have to, I don't mean to sound so negative, but we can't root how we treat other people post-fall. We've got to look pre-fall. And pre-fall was all about honor. It was all about intimacy. It was all about love. It was all about team. Together, man and woman, co-regents, co-reigning over creation. That's a big deal. It wasn't the man and the one. He wasn't like out there on the, and say, you make me a lunch. I want peanut butter today. And your part in this is to make sure that I'm all set. They were a team. And let me just say boldly, 
The Assemblies of God is an egalitarian movement. We believe that women and men are equal in God's sight. That's why Joel 2 says that God's going to pour his spirit on the men and the women, all flesh. And I have a daughter, and I have a wife, and I want them fully released into ministry. They have a heart that I cannot match. So we look at this human-to-human plane, and we say, okay, the post-fall stuff aren't unique to us. We see that based in, we want to see leadership that's based in humility and deference. And so, ministry teams, we have to seek intimacy. We've got to make it happen. <laughs> like, it's not just about the calendar. It's about lives. It's about in our busy life saying, you know what, we're going to shut the calendar down, and I just want you guys to come on over and we're going to play a game, and we're going to make fun of each other, and we're going to grill, and we're going to let our kids mess up my house. And it's all for the team, because the team is all about the kingdom. And the kingdom is what lost people coming to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something, a person is a better evangelist when they got somebody in their corner praying for them, as opposed to in their corner evaluating them all the time. Amen. I love the people I work with. Not always great at showing it, but I'm getting a lot better. Finally, the God in a human plane. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined with his wife, and the two are united in one. Now the man and his wife are both naked and without shame. This third part, this third demonstration, is that the man and the woman were created to reflect the nature of God, which is Trinity. And I want to point something out to you. That there is a change in how God self-identifies in chapters 1 and 2. I, I showed you earlier how it was always Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. But there's a change. The change goes from uh, Elohim, which is a plural noun occurring in every verse, except those several that I showed you there. And it becomes Adonai. Elohim. Adonai. It, Elohim is just a general name for God. It's used in the pagan nations as well. Adonai as well. It just means Lord, Master, Owner, which are all relational ideas. So now you've got this general idea that just says God, almighty God, who is personal, who is Lord, who is master. He's Lord and master because there's people over whom he is Lord and master. It's relational. And so God makes this, he makes this switch. And what I look at is that team-based leadership on this God-human plane is not an authoritarian, distant dictator. He is a close and personal God. The, my heavenly leader knows me. And every time I come to him, he doesn't ask for a report on how the finances are. In fact, you know what I've learned to pray? So we just replaced the roof. We just redid the parking lot and we're replacing the boiler. We're almost there and all that kind of stuff. And we're so excited. And I walk into the church on a baptism Sunday and there's buckets all over the halls. We sprung another leak. And it was funny because I was saying, hey, listen, after the service, we'd love for you to get a coffee in the Mission Cafe, support human, uh, fighting human trafficking. Just go out these doors, follow the buckets, and you'll get to the, you're making a joke out of it. But you know what I prayed in the service? God, there's a problem with your church. What are you going to do about it? 
It's not mine. It's his. And I know that I can bring that to him because he is in relationship with me. And that's what kind of pastor I want to be. See, you got to understand that I'm actually the under-shepherd. He's the pastor. I'm the assistant pastor. And my responsibility, just like my staff, is to represent me. I'm to represent him. And if he's loving and kind and relational, Boyvin better get his act together and make sure that he's relational, that he walks slowly down the halls, even when his mind is on 100 different things. It's about Jesus. It's about him calling us onto his team. And that's why in the book of Revelation, we rule and reign finally with him forever. Like what starts in the garden, lost in the fall, is regained. The, the, the Christian story is from garden to garden, from tree to tree. With right in the middle, a tree of redemption where our Savior was hung. To make a way, once again, that we who were fallen still made the image of God. The image of God was not broken. We were broken. He puts us back together and he says, now, can we get back to business? Can we get back to subduing the earth? Can we get back to saving the world? And we'll do it as a team. Boy, you got to do it on your own. Stop acting like you're doing it alone. So, here you go. I believe the best approach to ministry is team-based ministry. Unless you want to build your own kingdom. So for those of you who are here and you're wanting to build your own kingdom, do it by yourself. Because you're not going to be able to get people to come along with you. But if you want to do something really special, and you want to build the kingdom of God as co-laborers with Christ, and co-laboring together, go out as a team. And one of the things I'm really thankful, Dave, is that we're all part of the network team. We've committed ourselves to reaching Ohio for Jesus, making major gains over the next 10 years. I'm so thankful I don't have to do it alone. I do it with a team with great leaders around me. Ohio for Jesus, $40. You can buy it out in the hallway. <laughs> Friends, I just want to tell you, the kingdom is built through teams. Amen. Gone are the days where you've got big shots and little shots, right? Listen, we're all just medium shots. We are just people that are working together, serving Jesus, as part of a team. I apologize for going so fast, but thank you for coming. Can I pray for you? And I'll stay for a little bit if you, if, if you want to uh, take a couple questions or whatever, but uh, can I pray over you? Heavenly Father, we need Jesus. All of our hope is in you. And I pray, Lord, over these leaders, wherever they are on the team, whether they perceive it as a big role, little role, medium role, whatever, God, I pray in Jesus' name, that you would empower them by your Holy Spirit, that they would be better than they are, they would be stronger than they feel, that as your word promises us, that together, a three-chord strand is not easily broken. And I ask right now, Lord, that each person that's here, that's feeling alone, would recognize like Paul did, that the Lord was with them the entire time. They're always on the team and you're not abandoning us. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here. Oh.